This is Life and Books and Everything, hosted by Kevin DeYoung, Justin Taylor, and Colin Hansen. Greetings and salutations. Good to have you with us for Life and Books and Everything. I am just reading our names off of um, the Squadcast screen, Rev Kev with Colin Hansen, and I'm probably having technical difficulties, Guy. That's Justin. <laughs> Glad to have you all with us. I, I thought- <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sounds perfect. I would like to start us in a, in a little different direction, and we will get to... You know, there's there's lots that we could talk about in the world around us at really important things. And, you know, the three of us have been communicating that we're walking this this delicate balance here that this is life and books and everything. And so we want to talk about books, but I guess there's life and there's everything in there. And, uh, you know, on certain weeks, I mean, we would be derelict if we had never said anything about coronavirus, just happily talking about books as if there's no global pandemic or talking about life as if there is not a a major historical moment going on as best as we can see in our country regarding race. So we, we will talk about some of those things. And yet there are lots of podcasts out there that give you uh, the the latest on current events from a Christian perspective, and and those are really helpful, and we're not trying to duplicate that. So with all of that as a preface, I wanted to start, before we get to any of that, and uh, this may sound like a weird place to begin, but I'm reading a book right now called—it's about 10 years old, 15 years old. It's called The Morality of Laughter, and— I'm not very far into it, but you know, at least one of the basic arguments is laughter and humor is not simply a distraction or merely a pleasure to enjoy, but it's a universal human phenomenon. And more than that, when done properly, it's it it has salutary effects that often laughter is, I mean, not always, there's just silly gags and things and people getting hit wherever with baseball bats, but there are, there can be a morality to laughter. That's the argument that it's teaching you something about vice and virtue in laughter. Now, all of that is a segue to say, how do you guys think about in the midst of 2020, which is it seems like by any measure, not the year that people were planning for. Uh, how do you balance their weighty things going on, really heavy things? We don't want to bury our head in the sand. And yet, do you do you give yourself permission to, to watch a, a funny movie, to listen to a, a you know, Netflix stand-up? Do, do you laugh? How do we handle the weight of these times and still have the human element and joy and pleasure and laughter. Have you guys thought about that? Colin, how do you assess the mood that we're in as a country and who we are as human beings trying to navigate that mood? I wonder, Kevin, if it's contextual, because we probably remember that time 
uh, when John Piper was speaking before a group of Christian counselors. Yes. And he's talking about all of these serious, serious, weighty manners of the transcendent glory of God. And I can't remember, Justin, what was the story? What were, were they just not prepared for it? Or was there something else that came out about that news? What was the, what, 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 what turned out to be the case? Yeah, I don't think there was some profound backstory. They just were primed when somebody was talking about themselves very seriously without any sort of warm-up that it must be tongue-in-cheek or for effect or something like that. Yeah. Well, I've noticed also that sometimes a church can take on or, or a friendship can take on a certain measure of frivolity or even sort of like distance through sarcasm. And so I've actually been thinking about this lately as an elder in my church that I've noticed that a lot of the times our interactions, at least initially, are very ironic and detached and thinking about how I don't, I don't actually think that's very helpful for us as elders. I don't think it's in keeping uh, with our office. At the, so I, so I want to say off the, off the bat that there are a lot of occasions where I don't think it's particularly helpful and it might actually be harmful. And probably we, we live in a frivolous culture, and so probably we need to be especially aware of that danger. At the same time, I mean, I, I love to laugh. I hope that comes through on this podcast. Every, every friendship needs a big laugher. I was telling my wife this, Colin, and you have the... You, Here we go. It, it's a real joy. I mean, it really is... My good Thank friend you. Jason Halopoulos, uh, yeah. you know, he he has a big laugh. It's just great. Somebody who it fills the room. So thank you for having a big head. <laughs> I do have a very <laughs> large being, head. Not not in pride, just physical, just physically size large head <laughs> and laughing loud. <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. The things you miss on a podcast. Can um, you wear a hat? Can I wear a hat? Yeah. Yeah, it no. just has to be big. It has to be like size eight. Well, that's why like you that. notice they don't say one size fits all anymore. They say one size fits most. Oh, they I didn't some, realize. No, they that. do. There's some lawsuit somewhere behind there. It has been a lie all these years. <laughs> yeah, no, I, most. Yeah, no, I get uh, it's about you know about a size eight, which is which is pretty you know pretty pretty large. Um, but no, I do I do love to laugh, and and I will say there are plenty of things about me that my my wife uh, graciously overlooks, but that is one thing that she also appreciates in our marriage. So it's just part of, I think, I mean, I, it's interesting, Kevin, a lot of people would think they know me. I'm a very serious person because I talk about a lot of serious things like we do on this podcast and serious books. And this podcast is going to get into some of those topics, but I just don't see that as inconsistent with, with a, a joy out of life and out of an appreciation for the absurdity of so much. And also just a, a passage I came across this, this last week reading Psalm 94, 19, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. And I don't know that that necessarily has to be merely abstract, but I believe that this can be a very real mark of, of a Christian is somebody who's willing to even sort of, even in the midst of evil, in a fallen world, to find the joy of Christ and to and to laugh and to enjoy that friendship. So, hadn't thought about this a lot, but I just I'm just going to hold out that those things are not mutually exclusive. Justin, what do you what do you think? I mean, Justin's sense of humor, as you guys know, and listen to the podcast, is different. You got to be listening 
for it. And so even last night, Justin, you're you're poking fun at one of our friends on Twitter, and he can't even tell. No, that's he often the case with Justin. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I wish there was an acronym for laughing on the inside. <laughs> that would be me. Yeah, I think it's a great question. It sounds like a great book. Um, and I've always loved this C.S. Lewis quote where he says he loves nothing more than the sound of adult male laughter, which is just you, you imagine Lewis sitting around with his friends in the pub and, and laughing and smoking and drinking and talking about profound things and the fact that he loved that sound more than anything else, I think it's just a, a beautiful little thing. And yet you don't think of him as a um, somebody who's just being silly or just, you know, telling jokes to tell jokes, but there's kind of a profundity to it and a depth to real laughter versus just uh, the laugh track. My, my wife and I were in the car the other day and uh, the kids were listening to an I Love Lucy episode in the background. And if you're watching something like that, you don't really notice the laugh track. It, it kind of goes along. But if you're just listening and all you hear is the canned laughter, I mean, it's, it's funny, I guess, for a little bit. But it's very annoying after a while, just kind of fake laughter. Um, but I think there's biblical grounds for holding to the complexities of life, like Colin was saying. I mean, the book of Ecclesiastes talks about different seasons. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10 says that we are to be always sorrowful and always rejoicing at the same time. So I think our emotions can be complex because life is complex. The Bible is ultimately, from a literary standpoint, a comedy right? in the way in which it ends. There's, there's surprise and there's joy and there's breaking in and there's unexpected reversals. Um, so I, I do love to hear good laughter. I love to hear Colin laugh. I love to laugh on the inside. <laughs> I love to, love to tell dad jokes that, uh, my 15 year old son laughs very loudly at them, but nobody else does. <laughs> so, well, it's nice um, that they still laugh at them. I, I, think, I know uh, they'll appreciate it someday. I think. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe I'm just doing my own self therapy here. I remember when I was a, a camp counselor in college one summer and you got to the end of the summer with all the counselors and we did a, a big affirmation circle. That's cringeworthy enough. And you get in the middle and then every, all the other counselors have to say something about you. And inevitably it was the really serious people that got the godly, holy, uh, you know, I see the glory of God in them and the, the funny people got crazy spirited. And I, 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 I was, I was jealous for some of the other ones. So it's, it's taken me a long time. Wait, which one was yours? Kevin? No, I, I was the funny guy. Oh, that was, okay. yeah. Okay. And, and I remember the camp director saying, uh, you, I didn't get what I thought I was getting with you. Cause when I interviewed, he's probably asking about what I did for fun. And I, well, I'm a college student. I read Calvin's commentaries. Well, that's sort of a one sort of <clears throat> side of me. I mean, that's a, that's, that is a laugh track. That's a, a riot, but it's taken me a long time to be okay with, yeah, that's how, I, you know, and your, your warning is good, Colin, not to be jaded, not to be sarcastic, not to be the person that's always, I remember one pastor that we would all know saying in a very good self-deprecating way that, you know, his, his bus of church people was showing up to a, like a mission trip where another bus of church people and his bus got off and it was, they were all yucking it up and the other bus had been praying or something. And he thought, I don't know, am I doing something 
wrong here. So there's always a, a danger, but I think it's really healthy to realize some people have really serious personalities and uh, they shouldn't try to be funny, <laughs> especially especially if my rule when I teach students and you're preaching, if you're not funny in real life, don't try to be funny in the pulpit. It'll be worse. It doesn't magically transform. No, it doesn't. Film. Even though, even though the standards are very, very low for pastors. <laughs> but I've just been thinking about this because, on the one hand, I I do not want to be, you know, at I'm very weighed down by all these things happening. I didn't think I could be more weighed down than I was with coronavirus, and then all of all of this. I mean, it's just very heavy the, the, to watch the George Flo- George Floyd. It's is almost excruciatingly heavy uh it, and we don't but i remember andy crouch you know a couple of weeks or last week wrote that article about watching less news and one of the points he made was we're not trained we're not trained to take in violence and and then conflict constantly and we're just getting that and it seems to me that you know the biblical world had some healthier models they you know somebody would die they'd have a set season you're you you mourn for 30 days or for 40 days. This is this is feasting. This is fasting. This is mourning. This is rejoicing. And it's just very hard. So I don't want to be, uh, you know, running away from those uncomfortable moments at all. And yet I do think sometimes people need permission that if you think the only way to deal with a crisis honorably is unending seriousness— you, you just can't do it and you can't last and you make for an ornery person. I don't, I don't know. The Bible doesn't seem especially concerned with giving us these aspects of personalities. We know a little bit more about Jesus in this regard, but we don't know a lot. I don't think about a lot of the other characters, um, figures and the, and the people in the Bible. But I do think in history, we have some examples and, I don't imagine a lot of us think that Calvin was a big laugher. Probably not. That doesn't doesn't seem that way. Doesn't seem, doesn't like, seem that way. Or doesn't seem like they found him to be funny. No, no, <laughs> no. Either way, but Luther, of course, right, was Spurgeon. Spurgeon was, and I don't think anybody, no matter how serious they are now, would regard Luther or Spurgeon to be somehow spiritually deficient because of that. So I think it's just another call to not necessarily baptize our personality as the norm, but at the same time to recognize the time that we're in and be wise and on our guard not to just fall in line with sort of the direction of the culture. And what's challenging in our time right now is that everything is so prepackaged. I mean, if you know, we could log off of this podcast and immediately find the 15 funniest jokes on YouTube, and it's just prepackaged for you. And I, there's a distinction between getting comedy sort of prepackaged for you, which can be innocent and can be fun and can even be edifying versus finding things funny in real life because life is just funny. Uh, Babies falling over because they're tired. That's funny. Um, You know, ironic wordplay is funny. It's, I think when we get into just, it's all sarcasm, it's all prepackaged. We start to get unhealthy, I think in the opposite direction. Yeah. So let's, Let's talk about some of what's going on, and I'm just gonna. I have some thoughts, and you, you two are with me this time, so I promise not to do a 25 minute monologue on it. <laughs> what was um, my feedback, Kevin? Um, good if long. 
you said about it. And so I thought, uh, well, the if means maybe, maybe not. And you clarified, no, it was it was long. Uh, I had some people say they appreciate it. I did not have anyone say I wish it were longer, but I only preached about 28 minutes the other week, and my son came up quick and just said, he was concerned, like, Dad, that was so short. Or like, are you feeling okay? So I'll let you guys go first. Just there, there's so much going on, and let's let's set aside COVID unless you want it to intersect because it it does. As epidemiologists have reversed course now on what we we can or cannot do, but how are you processing all of the? the drama and some hope and some angst and some lots of pain and some violence, everything we're seeing on TV protests and riots and police reform and black lives matter and politics gone amok. Uh, Justin, what are you thinking and feeling to make sense of this present moment? Yeah, I, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier, Kevin, it, it is uh, just a heavy time. I mean, and the worst people in the world to judge whether something's historical or not are the people that are in the moment, right? But it still does feel like trying to be as objective as possible. 2020 is one for the history books. I mean, from the president of the United States being impeached to a global 100-year pandemic to... Uh, what feels like a very different situation in terms of race stuff. And the three of us have been thinking about race and observing race and participating in the discussions and seeking to learn and to read and to contribute where appropriate for what, 20, 25 years. I mean, for us, this is not some new thing like, oh, I've not really thought about uh, racial disparities before. I've not really thought about police brutality. Uh, so this isn't new for us, but it, it does feel like something different is happening right now. And of course we need perspective to see if that's true or not. Um, but it does feel like a heavy time. Um, and I think it's the, the convergence of all sorts of different things. Um, there's, there's the lament piece of just lamenting that this is the reality. There's the weeping with those who weep of, um, you know, as we're recording this, Shai Lin, I think uh, all of us would count him as a, a friend. I published a piece at Gospel Coalition. I saw one uh, brother refer to it as a, a modern-day letter from Birmingham jail, um, which is, of course, high praise. Um, to read something like that and not viscerally feel pain and feel remorse and feel regret and um and, and, and just give 20 seconds. What was Shai talking? I, I read it. We've all read it. But just in case people haven't, he's talking about his experiences, doing it in a very humble but very raw way. Yep. It's an African-American male living you know, in Philly and D.C. Uh, I don't know how old Shai is. Probably similar to our age, late 30s, 40s. Um, talking about just the lifelong experience of white suspicion and, and driving while black. And, uh, and it wasn't melodramatic and it wasn't a, a sob story. It was just saying, here, you want a little window into my life and my experiences and my psyche and how this has affected me. And it, it was not a hopeless piece, but it was a hope filled piece because he's, his heart is centered on the gospel of Jesus. Um, so all of that feels heavy. And then you, you throw into it the protests 
and you throw into it the rioting and the violence, and it just feels like it's adding weight upon weight. Um, I don't know, Kevin, if you want to talk about the protests as a separate item later, if you want to talk about that now. What, no, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think we should all support lawful protests and see it as something important and right, that we have the right to do that and uh, to want to stand for justice and to participate when we can. Uh, it seems also like we should be against violence and um, destroying property and looting. Um, and it seems like we should also be able to to say both of those truths without hedging um, and not to emphasize one over the other, but to say, we think this is right. We think this is wrong. And yet it's also disorienting. Like, like what are we protesting? Am I protesting uh, the death of an innocent man? Yes, I am. Am I protesting that I want uh, the police defunded in every community in America? No, that's not something that I think is a wise idea. I think it would would hurt the poor. I think it would hurt people of color. So it, it's just you know disorienting, I think, when you have a country of our size with the number of ideologies represented and, and warring agendas, um, you know, try to put yourself in there and, and where do I fit exactly? And it's been hard. I mean, really depending on what you read, your head just gets spun around. I mean, I read some things that it's, they're peaceful protests, few extremists have, you know, obviously some really bad nights, but you know, some make it sound 95% of this are peaceful protests. And then you read other, no, these, that's the media. These aren't peaceful protests or this particular situation wasn't, and you don't have the full story. And I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I see tens of thousands of people in city squares, and I think most people must be peaceful or uh, that scene couldn't happen. And yet we've seen, uh, you know, perhaps more earlier on some of the scenes at, at night. And I don't know if that's a too simplistic of a heuristic, but it sort of seemed to me if you want to have a peaceful protest, it seems like the people doing that are probably arranging for it at 10 in the morning or four in the afternoon and probably not at nine at night. So, uh, you know, it's just, it's hard for any of us to know exactly everything that's going on. Colin, how are you continuing to, to think through it with your head and your heart? Well, I am glad to see across the state of Alabama, Confederate monuments falling. Um, As somebody who's been a long standing, a proponent of, of historical education, as well as study of the Civil War in particular, I regret that a lot of people think that when you study the Civil War, it means that you somehow appreciate the Confederacy or their ideals. And I don't. And so even though, I, again, I love history and I love remembering, and I think that it's so important, I think it is a strong, if, if still symbolic, step uh, toward justice to see these monuments come down. And that one, uh, including the one that's three miles from my house in downtown Birmingham. And and I think that? a lot of people do. Who was that of? Uh, that was just to soldiers. Um, okay, it, was it wasn't not a person. Well, and now, now here's the, a lot of people just don't know the history. So for example, you think, why in the world would there be a monument to the Confederacy in downtown Birmingham? We weren't a city in the Civil War. So there's nobody you could even feature. It's not like... Our city had some kind of favorite son who went off and accomplished something um, in the war. It, it didn't exist. 
as a city then. So then you start to understand the symbolic but real role that these monuments played in reinforcing a certain kind of, of dominance and supremacy in those cases. So, you know, they that was... They weren't put up in 1865. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. They were put up in the late 1800s into the 1900s. And then, of course, the closer you get now, you, you see this a rash of different sort of uses of the Confederacy that emerge in the 1960s, of course, connected to the civil rights movement in that case. And uh, so that's so I want to be clear about that, because here in Birmingham, again, just a few miles uh, from my house, we had that situation go down. And in fact, uh, our church was told to expect um, via the grapevine some kind of property attack, um, which never came, thankfully. But so we're, we're kind of kind of in the middle of that. And it was a real, little bit scary. But the point is, even though that kind of emerged at night, I'm still glad for the outcome. I'm very sad for my friends and, and others whose businesses were damaged um, downtown. And it can so self-destructive because in your downtown Birmingham, so many of the businesses that were destroyed or damaged were, of course, ones led by African-Americans. Um, I, I have been, my church, my, my, excuse me, my phone has been ringing off the hook in the last week and a half uh, to two weeks with pastors, members, others, just asking for asking for counsel, just telling me their story. I get a sense that just in part of the historic nature of what's happening here is uh, there are a lot of churches in crisis right now. A lot of groups of elders who are not remotely on the same page with this stuff, uh, moving in, in very different directions. And I think the, the part that's at least clear for me is that a lot of people are confused thinking that the protests and the response are directly or exclusively related to George Floyd and what was done to him, but they're not. And I don't think they're even specifically or exclusively about police brutality, but about a whole wide range of frustrations. And the, the thing about Shai's piece uh, that we published today and I give Matt Smethurst a lot of credit. He and Shai have go back a number of years, and they've been Matt's been working with Shai, and now was finally the time for us to be able to publish that article. And I'm glad we did because basically, for those people who who might be in a different position, what Shai is saying is what so many of us hear regularly from our black friends. And I don't know, guys, what else I'm supposed to do, except to believe them. I don't have any reason not to believe them with what they say about these things. And so I don't overcomplicate this with a whole bunch of different, you know, sociological and political theories. It's pretty much as simple as I know what my friends tell me. I don't have any reason to deny what they say. And I can see with my own two eyes what it looks like in the world. And I don't know about the debate. We could have a good debate about equality of um, opportunities versus equality of outcomes. But I just have a hard time thinking that with the inequality of outcomes that we necessarily do have a level playing field of an equality of, of opportunities. At least I know in my own context that that's not true. So I don't know what that means more broadly. But I think was it, um, I remember there was an article that went around that was talking about systemic racism. And it basically, you guys may have read the same piece. I don't think we shared it with each other. I'm not sure. But it more or less says if 
if you're skeptical about what you're what you're hearing from African Americans, just consider this. You have a couple different options. One of them is that African Americans are simply inherently worse or inherently less capable. And that's why these outcomes are the way they are. Well, if that's the choice you take, well, then that's just flat out racism. Okay, so that's your one option. Your other option is to consider that either current opportunities are not equal or the historical effects of racism continue to bear certain outcomes today. So talk about dictionary definitions and cultural Marxism all you want, but that's basically just what systemic racism means, that things that happened in history still have an effect today. And again, I don't want to get all, get all of us in hot water there, but I just, I don't think it's that complicated. And I think we, we try to overcomplicate it. Kevin, what do you think? I think it is more complicated. All right, bring it on. <laughs> well, well let, let me not turn this into a, a, a monologue. Uh, I, I think, I know I got 24 minutes left. So I think at any, there, there are a number of things going on. That's a truism. And I'm always trying to pull out what what we are really, and I don't just mean we, the three of us, that we disagree on some things, but what we may agree on and disagree on so that we can see more clearly, oh, this is what our real disagreement is about here so that we don't miss where there is real agreement. So uh, I see at least four layers. So real quick, one is the personal. And I, I completely agree, Colin. I my instinct as a pastor, and I think it's hopefully just a human instinct when talking to our friends, is I hear what most, not all, but the overwhelming majority of African Americans I know and have known have described their experience in particular with police. With I believe them. I, I, I don't think they're making it up. I think those things have happened, even if they haven't happened to me and I haven't seen them. I, I believe that. And, and I, I read Shai's piece this morning, and I thought, yeah, viscerally, what can we do so that does not happen? Now, evil things happen in the world. We get that. But if there's something we can do to minimize those experiences, I want to be a part of that. But there's also a personal level. Um, you just take police officers. Again, I don't have a lot of experience with police community. The officers that I talk to, again, my instinct as their as their pastor, as their friend, is to believe, at least the ones I'm talking to, who who tell of all the things they're trying to do and how frustrated they are when something happens really bad that they hate, and now people shout death to pigs to them. Um, my, I, I grieve with that, too. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's fair to... Um, you know, hardworking men and sometimes women who are trying to do the right thing and and hate the injustice that's there. So on a personal level, that that's going on. There's the political level because everything is about politics today and everything is, you know, w- what you think Trump did or what he meant. And if you say something critical about Trump, then you, you must have really hoped that Hillary won and vice versa. And not to mention that, you know, for a lot of, you know, most of our African-American friends probably would say th- they're they're convinced that Trump, if not a racist, aids and abeds those who are. 
So that's a political question. That's just there. You, and, and that's part of what the layer is. Uh, then there's the structural. And that's maybe where, Colin, you and I would, would talk about. I think it's a little more complicated. I think there are more options. I don't think any monocausal explanation for disparities is going to work. And I know you agree with that. Yeah, I'll be quick quick on that one. When it comes to when it comes to the past, when I'm teaching about say history of Birmingham, it's kind of easy to be able to connect some of the dots. White flight doesn't make things go better in the city when white people leave. You know, simple things like that. When it comes to solutions, the way I tell people, what I tell people is whatever you think is a problem, you're right everything. And just, but so yeah, I don't, I don't think there's like, historically speaking, we kind of know how we got here generally, not, not, not exhaustively, but generally. But the problem is when you try to figure out what to do, you're like, well, if you want to tackle fatherlessness, go for it. If you want to tackle inequities in school funding, go for it. If you want to get better teachers, go for it. So I just wanted to affirm, I completely agree there. There's no one Cost. Right. And, and my point is, some of the, what we're then talking about implicitly are these structural issues where, you know, I, again, I don't want to be quietist and say, well, it's just, you know, just pray and we never have to think about legislation or reforming the police. But I do think we need to have some humility, like Justin said earlier podcast, you know, if, if you haven't spelled the word epidemiology before, then don't pretend that now you know it. So, uh, I don't removing qualified immunity for police officers. I don't know. Some people that I like are saying that's a good idea. I don't know. I haven't spent time thinking about it and, you know, more than since last week. So I do think we have to be careful that our, what, what we think is the right way to make the situation better becomes the Christian way. And again, it's not to say that there there might not be a more Christian way or a better way or that there aren't good or right answers. But I think if we can at least pull that out, then we can say on a personal level, here's where I am. And I'm still thinking about the structural level. And then just finally, there's a theological level. And that's sometimes what we're really arguing about. Uh, There's things that are easy to agree on. We're all made in the image of God. We should have worth and dignity. And then there are, there are tricky theological questions of group identity and uh, how complicit are we for sins of the past. Uh, you know, there's people arguing, I think, very mistakenly that, um, you know, we can just say to be gospel-centered means, you know, there's gospel, there's justice, never the two shall meet. And yet we both know that there's also things that come under the category of justice that are are a far cry from what the Bible means by justice. So there are theological issues. And part of what I feel as a pastor is, uh, you know, this sense that what am I trained to do? What I'm trained to do well, I hope, is the personal side of talking to people, listening to people. My instincts are, I believe you, I sympathize with you, I support you. That can be hard when you have some subset of people saying one thing and another subset. And and I don't believe their stories are mutually exclusive, but, but they can be hard um, to just think of groups and understand them. And then, uh, you know, um, we're trained to do theology. We're trained to think about things theologically. 
we're not experts in how we got here. And more importantly, as you said, Colin, what's the next step to make things better? And that's where I do think some epistemic humility is in order. And and I hope that um, I, I don't think it you should, you know, ask for a lot of patience or, you know, or a lot of waiting before you can say everything we see about the George Floyd murder looks like murder. Uh, I mean, just a, a heinous painful, something you wouldn't even want to see in a movie in its real life. So you shouldn't have to say, give me three weeks to kind of think about that. Now he's due, the officers do his day in court, certainly. Uh, but there are other things that I think we ought to be able to say, hold on a minute. Have, have we, ha- before we say we know exactly what the issue is and what the answer is, have we thought about it? Have we have we read more than a few blogs and podcasts? I, I mean, you guys have. I'm not talking about you, but I think there's a knee jerk reaction. Say something immediately, quickly. Everybody get on board, and I don't think that helps things in the long run. Yeah, I think all of us, uh, the three of us, have uh, a conservative impulse and presupposition that favors incrementalism over revolution and radicalism. I think that I'm, I'm not trying to speak for the two of you, but well, definitely uh, Burkeans as opposed yeah. to the alternatives. I mean, just to put it in historical context. Yeah. I think Burke was right about the French revolution and, and, and Hamilton. Hamilton was, you know, against the French revolution. Um, it, we, we have a suspicion of the progressive impulse that says, we need to just do something, anything, uh, and then we'll, we'll think about the consequences later. I mean, t- to see some of the discussion with the defund police, you know, we'll, we need to defund police and we'll think about the alternative later. I mean, to me, that just grates against every single instinct that I have. And yet the thing that I've been bothered about in my own conscience as I look to myself is if everybody was like me, which is sort of my presupposition, if everybody was just like me in terms of race, it would be not a perfect world. It would still be a sinful world, but it would largely be good. It would be better than it is now. But would things significantly change? Would they change at a cultural level? Would they change at a a systemic level? Uh, I don't know that they would, and that's been bothering me in my conscience. Uh, In other words, I like to work towards peace and justice and harmony in my relationships. I like to speak truth where I can, but by nature, I I tend to like more respectable tactics and uh, don't like revolutionary impulses. So, no, I don't I know just, if you guys have thought about. Yeah, I, I have. It feels I, like a problem. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's a good insight. I'll give you a an illustration. When I was in my previous denomination, was leading up a renewal group, which I don't think in the end was was very successful. And one of the reasons that I often thought about, and, and I was the leader of it, and I don't mean this in any self-aggrandizing way, I'm just using an analogy. I, I always felt like I had gifts to be a Calvin more than a Luther, meaning uh, a careful scholar, study, write, read. And I often thought, you know, to really affect some change here, we probably needed a Luther. We need somebody who was bombastic, somebody who maybe sometimes said something and, and went too far and needed to be pulled. You know, I 
needed I, I i could systematize and i could put it together and i could make it responsible and and you need that too so i i i hear what you're saying justin there's more than one type of person who can affect change uh, you know so that that's well taken my my caution was simply you know with pastors or christian leaders and there's probably some who really have given a lot of thought about this and can give a a, a nuanced and appropriate uh, but even then i think it should be uh, with an understanding in many of these cases with prudential arguments about this is, we want injustice to be remedied. We want these things to be better. Here's what we think, what I think, as I've said, it is a good way to do it. And if you disagree um, with how best to reform the police, it doesn't mean as a matter of course that you aren't on the side of justice. Now I get it. We can we can be death by a thousand qualifications. We end up, you know, just wanting to be so careful that you never, you know, you're saying all of your qualifications at loud voice and you're saying, well, of course, injustice is wrong with a throat clearing and that would be a mistake. Um thing though, the thing is though, guys, that I feel like I'm so conservative that it actually makes me sound radical in these things. So here's what I mean. So when I talk about sort of civil rights history, race history in the United States, um, you have to deal with the question of what do you do with this information? And I think the younger rising generation now wants to condemn their parents and they want to condemn their grandparents and say, we're nothing. We're not going to make those mistakes again. We're not, we're not going to be like them. And then the previous generation that made the mistakes, they just want to kind of ignore it in a lot of ways. Just say, no, I'm not going there. But I don't think either one of those ways is is very helpful. So my conservative instincts kick in to say, I don't want to be naive. Um, It's not like previous generations were perfect. I don't want to be self-righteous, though, and say that I'm nothing like those generations generations like i think my conservative christian orientation says i'm probably more like them and it makes me think this like you know how we're taught hermeneutically to be able to see you're not david versus goliath you're you're out there with all the other people who are just like just sitting there on the sideline watching the champion step forward in courage i think what gets me guys is that i am in so many ways an incrementalist I am in so many ways conservative. And Dr. King had a word for people like me. Uh, he, called, he called me the moderate. And he read, a, he read a whole letter from Birmingham jail that was targeting the moderates there. And we remember those people as like, they all just get lumped together. The moderates and the people who bombed, they were all just white people who were for segregation. They weren't. They were really different from each other. And what's hard for me is that I see so much of myself in the moderate side of things and think, have I really learned the lessons there? And I just just have to confess, I don't think that I have necessarily. Um, so again, I, that might be a bomb dropping in there, but I think that's my conservative instincts that say, whether, and say, by the way, I do the same thing with Whitfield or Edwards. We have these conversations all the time. And I think people tie themselves in knots to get around what is, I think should be clear, which is even these titanic men of God can make, make huge mistakes. 
And if they can, I don't know how we can't. So that just, that makes me throw myself under the grace of God all the more and trust and ask Jesus to help me with that. Am I off base with that approach? Well, let's, um, no, there's more I would want to say about that. <laughs> but somebody said that these go too long. <laughs> me. Uh, y- yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I do think that's a good good word to think about who the, the moderates were. Uh, of course, as a, as a general, you know, rule of thumb, it depends on the thumb. Exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. it, Completely it depends agree. on what the, it, what the extreme is. And, uh, so l- let's, let's look, let's go into history. You made a nice segue to go into history and, uh, all of us like history. And we realize that history can serve the present. That's one reason you, you read history. And sometimes it helps you illuminate the present, understand the present. But we, I think we'd all agree that the first way to look at history is uh, in, in itself to be fair with the moment. So if you bring to history, um, what I want to get from the past is, first of all, you answer my questions in the present. That usually makes for bad historians. The way to start is to say, I want to understand, you know, the, the, the saying from the Skinner School of History, seeing things their way. I want to try to see things their way. And then you can make application and you can even make critical application. But on this theme and not trying to necessarily use this particular genre of history to speak to the present, though inevitably it does, but I wondered if you guys have two or three books that have helped you. Let's think about along the general theme about slavery. Could be American slavery, could be you know some other kind of slavery. Uh, but we like to talk about books. We've all read books on this subject and can help fill out our our meaning in good ways. Um, Justin, let's start with you. You what have been two or three books to help you historically understand? slavery. Yeah, I, I really do have a, an interest in slavery and um, have purchased a number of books and, and really have wanted to read more about the institution itself. Um, there's a whole new um, trend towards writing about slavery and capitalism. Uh, the Half Has Never Been Told as a new book. Uh, but to be honest, I haven't read as much about slavery as I have about the, the cultural context. Uh, so the Civil War. So um, Andrew Del Banco's recent book, The War Before the War, Fugitive Slaves, The Struggle for America's Soul from the Revolution to the Civil War was a, was an eye-opening and helpful book. Um, so that, that tends to be more of my reading about Civil War. Uh, I have a strong interest in Abraham Lincoln. So Eric uh, Foner's the, the Fiery Trial on Abraham Lincoln and how he viewed slavery and how he work towards um, emancipation was another, it's a, it's a masterful book in terms of historical progression. I think two that have impacted me uh, personally have been uh, Frederick Douglass's autobiography um, of an, as an American slave narrative life of Frederick Douglass. So that was written in 1845. And uh, to read that, uh, 
it, it's hard to think of many more books that have the the beauty and the pathos and the pain all mixed together because he was such a beautiful writer and uh, a Christian as well. So as he talks about the church and the hypocrisy that he sees. Another book by a slave who was a Christian is the interesting narrative of the life of Ulato Equiano, if that's how you say it. Yeah. I've read it my whole life, but how do you say it? Or Gustavus Vasa, the African written by himself. That was 50 plus years earlier. Um, he came to uh, Virginia and then ended up um, through convoluted series of events uh, going to Great Britain. Uh, but that was one I listened to on uh, audiobook. And those are... You know, there, there's books about the history, there's books about the experience, and then there's books where someone tells their experience in first person. And those, are, I think, are especially powerful. That's good. Colin, and, and for our listeners, we are working on We're some working system on whereby we can put these books in the show notes or link to them. We're working on that because we know we talk about books and you want to be able to look at these books and if there's one thing we can say about our show, we move product. <laughs> we just move product brought to you by Cactus Bread. Okay, Colin, <laughs> you've, you've read a lot in this and Civil War more generally. So what are yeah. some books that have been helpful? Well, you know, I, I think um, Frederick Douglass is relatively well known and therefore it can be easy to dismiss him. But when you just think about his life, it's just so remarkable. I mean, it's, I don't even know how to describe it. Um, and I think that's one of the, it gives you such a window into the miracle of African-American Christianity. And I just, man, what an amazing work of God. Um, and Douglas gives you a window into that. So one of the books that I'm reading right now, which I hope to finish by our 100th episode, uh, is uh, David Blight's book, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm slogging. I'm slogging through. How long is it? Oh, 800 yeah. pages, I think, something like that. But um, this is one of those, you guys are going to have to counsel me on book reading because my pride kicks in in a big way and tells me, Colin, you have got to finish these books. I don't you know. So the other one I'm sitting there with is, is um, Charles Taylor's sources of the self, not about slavery, but I'm like, I must read these books and I can't again. Bl so Blight says, I'm making it through. It's very interesting, but the whole series of the way of the Kings, Ivan Mesa, <laughs> yes, right. they're each like a thousand pages. I'm, I'm, I'm 10 pages in Ivan. So <laughs> Kevin, do you, do you also abandon books? I mean, Justin abandons books with abandon. Yeah, Justin does with abandon. Uh, it, it does. It does hurt my pride. But I'll tell you, I have just learned about too many times. I have picked up, you know, the Chernow style biographies, yeah. and I think yeah. this is going to be so good. And I know he's, you know, just world class. And I think I, I, I'm not getting through this. I'm not getting through. This. So I just, I have had to temper myself from venturing on some of those massive ones that are, you know really, really good, but it's a long haul. Yeah. I think this is where Marsden's uh, biography of Edwards for me hit a sweet spot. It's oh, yeah. long, but it moves. And it's um, five, it's five, four or 500. It's not right. 
a that thousand. does seem to make a big difference compared to that 700, 800 page range. Um, the other, the other two that other two books that come to mind and I, um, I will say no book has probably haunted me more than Mark Knowles, the civil war as a theological crisis. Um, I don't, I just, I don't think we've ever theologically confronted what happened there and the legacy that it's left us. I want to be specific. If people don't think this is currently relevant, then consider right now, there are debates on the internet that more or less imply, if not directly teach, that you can't have biblical inerrancy without political confederacy. And it's easy to dismiss that, to say, that's crazy. Of course you can have biblical inerrancy without the Southern Confederacy. That must be a small group of people. It must be, but overrepresented among certain denominations that we would know. And so I do think it's small, but the the thing about Noel is that he rubs your face in the inconvenient truth that the Southern, um, a lot of Southern defenders of slavery were also rock-solid theological biblical conservatives and that a lot of abolitionists were not, and that the Southerners employed very specific biblical arguments for slavery, whereas the Northerners tended to depend on more generic Christian teachings, like loving your neighbor, in ways that were appealing across denominations. That is a haunting book, and anybody who ever wants to sit down and talk more about this, I'm always open for that, because it just it continues to haunt us today, and I don't think it's a coincidence that our debates about race and theology continue to be linked in ways that are deeply inconvenient and frustrating. Uh, Justin, do you remember the the book? I have it behind me on one of the shelves here. Did Nathan Finn write the, an introduction to it? But it's it's um, the the dialogue between two Christians, North and South, in the eighteen forties or fifties about slavery. Uh, one of them is the moral philosophy professor at Brown. Another one I think is in South Carolina. It's not ringing a bell. I, ha- I have it behind me. And it was very helpful just to read from what you would probably describe both as, I mean, somewhat moderate in that they were willing to talk to one another publicly, but to read their actual arguments for and against slavery. And uh, I you know, I'm not surprised. I, I found the ones against it to be compelling, but you're right, Colin. There, there were arguments on both sides. Well, just listen. Just listen to this from Noel. For over 30 years, Americans battled each other exegetically on this issue, with the more orthodox and the ones who took more most seriously the authority of Scripture, being also the ones most likely to conclude that the Bible sanctioned slavery. The reason I bring that up is because. We do hear from voices today that have that same argument, and then they conclude, therefore, you must continue to support slavery, including as it was practiced in the American uh, South, um, and also, of course, before that, the American North. That's a problem. Okay, Kevin, you got the book. I found the book, Domestic Slavery Considered as Scriptural Institution. So it's between Richard Fuller and Francis Wayland, edited by Nathan Finn. And Keith Harper. So that wasn't even on my list of three books. So I'll mention my books on slavery quickly. 
you know, we talked to earlier podcasts, we just, you read and follow your nose and read in bunches. And so it just happened in the last months before any of this current events happened. I was reading three or four books on slavery. Uh, so first, Robert Davis, Christian Slaves, Muslim Masters, White Slavery in the Mediterranean, the Barbary Coast, and Italy, 1500 to 1800. So really fascinating. Um, it's, it's called, he, he refers it to as the other slavery. And some of the insights, he says, for example, all slavery has always existed. He said, what changed in the modern age is it took a leap in quality and quantity to become more efficient, which therefore made it even more deadly. Uh, so this is about the Barbary Coast, Muslim masters, Christian slaves. So they, they're pirates and they, they raid trading ships. About 90% of their slaves, therefore, were men. Interestingly, he says this Muslim slavery usually originated more as passion. It was more religious oriented or ethnic oriented. Or he said white slavery, uh, transatlantic, started out, started out, you know, business. Now became something different. Uh, so 10 to 12 million Africans to the Americas over four centuries. And, uh, he estimates about 1 million white slaves, uh, with Muslim masters from 1530 to 1780. So just a very different kind of slavery. Interesting book. Uh, this book by Catherine Gerbner, conversion and race in the Protestant Atlantic world. This is a year or two old. I forget which journal it is one of the history journals I subscribe to, but they just did an entire issue about this book. And uh, her, her thesis, which seems convincing to me and is harrowing at the same time, her big idea is that as slaves converted to Christianity, and she focuses more on the West Indies and does a lot of with Barbados, that's where her scholarship is, but I, I think it applies across the Americas. Her big idea is as slaves converted to Christianity, the axis of difference shifted from Christianity to whiteness. That whereas before there was a sense of what, what makes us different is Christian and whatever, heathen, pagan, something else. Well, some of them became Christians. Yeah. And then most, almost everyone, it's okay, well, what, you know, just, they just... And this wasn't, this is how people felt in the world. You know, different people are uh, inferior. Uh, that's not a, a unique situation for whites, but they were the ones in power. And so they felt that. And how do we now achieve that? If it's not Christianity, then it's to be white. And she shows that the language develops in the West Indies in particular. So her conclusion on the very last page is, you know, and this isn't a book that she's just hammering away at how evil missionaries were. In fact, she says on the very last page, it's this, this horrible irony of history. She says some of the most self-sacrificing, faithful, zealous missionaries who gave up life and livelihood to win black slaves to Christ were successful and therefore sowed the seeds of chattel slavery. And in some cases, then promoted and, and defended race-based differentiation. So he's saying it was because the missionaries went and were successful and they converted to Christianity 
that then whiteness became the differentiation. So it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a sobering book and, um, part of me wants to think it's, it's not right, but it, I think that sadly it is. Wouldn't that be true, Kevin, in terms of the American South as well? The responses right. to the uh, slave revolts in the 1820s and 1830s, where increasingly the restrictions grow and the differentiations grow, and you go from sort of like a reluctant allowance of slavery into an open like advocacy. This Instead of being tolerated, slavery becomes a biblical good That's over right. time. And that leads in my last book, because you're absolutely right. Um, and many people, if you just have a surface level understanding American history, um, don't how much changed in the, the first half of the 19th century. And it changed because of slave revolts, changed because of fear and lots of things, uh, where slavery then became something that was vigorously defended. And I do think it is important because it would be wrong to say that Christians throughout history have just defended slavery, defended. No, there, there are papal encyclicals from the Middle Ages against slavery. And Rodney Stark has written about this in some of his books, debunking some of those myths. It really is sadly among a lot of Presbyterians in the, the, the pre-war South where the most vigorous defenses came from. But one last book and this is uh, also came out recently. It's called No Property in Man, Slavery and Anti-Slavery at the Nation's Founding by Sean Willens. And he is making the case that there is, of course, this paradox in the Constitution, that on the one hand, uh, the Constitution was a compromised document because otherwise the lower South states wouldn't have ratified it. So on the one hand, the Constitution did strengthen and protect slavery, but what he's trying to point out, and I think convincingly, is that in an important way, the Constitution refused to validate slavery. So the title, No Property in Man, comes from a specific debate, and you can read about it in... Uh, you have this book, Colin, The Records of the Federal Convention of 1787. You know, I, I, think, I think I might have misplaced it. Yeah, well, it has several volumes, and it's good. You can read all... Th so this is from August of 1787, and there was a particular debate about the Constitution, the taxing, imposing of taxes on incoming slaves. And some delegates wanted the language to be of property. And Madison, I'm not saying Madison is spotless, and none of the founders were, but he makes a speech against this, saying it would not be, pro there is no property in man. And we should not use the language of property to refer to slaves. And so they change it by an overwhelming margin to refer to persons. And so Willens' argument is, and actually some of the abolitionists uh, looked back to this uh, during the, you know, the 19th century as, see, the Constitution was sowing the seeds. Uh, see, it was, it was saying they were persons. Now, it, it's a mixed bag. We, we know that. But the Constitution, Willens points out, you know, put a said for 20 years, after 20 years, the slave trade can be abolished in America. And, and actually, when that passed, some free blacks in Rhode Island celebrated that they, they saw that as a great victory for, for blacks in America. And ironically, on the first day that it was allowed to be abolished, it was abolished on January 1st, 1808. And who signed the law abolishing it? Thomas Jefferson. So it's just, 
it, it's in a microcosm, you know, it, hypocrisy, um, failure to live up to our ideals, all of those things. But Willen's book is a, a fascinating look at, and at least he's trying to say without being Pollyannish about uh, about the founding, but trying to say, yes, it was a paradox, but there were some seeds there in the Constitution and some moments where, uh, because of course, you know this, you guys have read the history, they couldn't have, they didn't see what was coming. You can't see what was coming. And so it was easy for those who opposed slavery to, to compromise with the South and we could fault them for it. They compromised thinking in their own minds, you know, slavery is not going to last. 20 years will abolish the slave trade. And of course they couldn't see that what would happen after post 1793 and how profitable and how lucrative it would be. And by the time of the civil war, um, and I think, you know, Thabiti's right about this. It, it wasn't just going away. It wasn't like, Hey, give it a few more peaceful years and slavery will be gone. It wasn't, it was profitable. And uh, of course they didn't see that at the founding. And so we can, you know, rue the fact that they made the compromise that they did, but it's always important when we look at history uh, not to simply not to ask first of all, boy, how how do they measure up with what we know today or what we would do, but try to understand how they were seeing things. So, gone too long about that. Any last words for us, Justin, as you think about becoming more informed, either historically or with present day situations, uh, and how to educate ourselves. Yeah, I think the two things that come to my mind are uh, to talk and to listen. And we can listen. Uh, you know, talking means speaking the truth and love. And uh, listening, which is a prior step. I, I don't like the idea of just always listening and never coming to knowledge of the truth, never speaking truth. But I think we can listen in two ways. We can listen to the past. So we can read uh, narratives from slaves. We can read analyses from historians. Um, I think if we don't do that, then we're just kind of swimming along with anecdotes and impressions. And a good study of history is essential, I think, to make sense of the present. So whether we're talking about reading Civil War history or whether we're talking about reading civil rights, uh, 1960s American history, uh, I think both of those are essential. But then not just to listen to the past, but also listen to our friends in the present, um, to hear what they have to say, to hear not only their analysis of the problems, but their proposals for combating the problems. Um, I don't think we should ever be in a position of saying just because someone has suffered that they've therefore uh, know all of the solutions, but we need to bring a biblical lens and a biblical perspective and uh, humble hearts to it. So uh, reading and listening, I think, I mean, I know that's not rocket science. That's not uh, breaking any news here to to enumerate both of those, but those are the two main things that come to mind. And, and I think too, I, I don't put myself as some great model of this, but I, I can say honestly, in the past two weeks, I have I've deliberately tried to find thoughtful voices, uh, and sometimes it's I think I'm going to agree with this person, and then and I've tried to listen to some folks that I think I, I'm probably not going to agree with this. So if if to truism, but you know, there's some truth in it. If we only are listening, especially on very complicated matters like this, to the people and to the stations that we know already, you're going to reinforce what I think. Um, we won't learn. And if you listen to people that you don't agree with, and 
you come out the other side saying, that's why I really don't agree with him. Now I understand it better. I do think in particular on this issue, which is so personal and has so much history, uh, we need to we need to really educate ourselves and listen. Colin, any last thoughts? No, I appreciate you guys. And I appreciate how we've talked about these issues for years. I appreciate your guys' willingness to disagree with me. I appreciate your willingness to allow me to disagree with you or individually or whatever, um, because ultimately I think that's going to be how we make progress. I have a lot of faith in starting at least and pushing. I mean, not that we're starting with this problem, but I, th- I see the biggest gap right now on education. A lot of people, especially white people, just don't know. They don't know the past. They don't know the issues. They haven't lived it. So yes, just what Justin said right there, you listen to friends, you learn by studying. And so less time on social media, more time reading reading books, more time making and listening to friends. And then as a the time comes for learning and for listening, then there will be a time for living, living it out, living it in different ways and ultimately in costly ways as well. And so I know that especially our, um, our minority brothers and sisters are eager for, uh, for help in living out a different way. And I think uh, we can do that. Go ahead, Justin. Just w- one more thing, just because this is a, a Christian podcast, I think we should not uh, just assume the importance of prayer. Um, and sometimes we know that this is wrong, but I find myself always thinking, you know, that prayer is something expected but it's not the most significant thing and that the most radical thing is to do something else. Uh, perhaps the most radical thing is to to set aside a half hour to pray, an hour to pray, to gather with people to pray, uh, and not to trumpet it on social media, not, not to announce our righteousness before man, but to spend extra time uh, that's not going to accrue uh, brownie points before the world. But uh, we do have one who sits on the throne who cares about justice. Uh, who will make all uh, that is wrong right, uh, who can send his son back again. Um, so I, I I love that somebody like Isaac Adams has a podcast uh, called United We Pray. I love that Crossway is publishing Mark Rogop's book, Weep With Me, uh, that contains prayers in, on uh, racial harmony and racial strife. So I just want to not let the podcast close without uh, not just calling listeners, but calling myself, calling the three of us to to spend more time praying, more time praying than tweeting. He who calls us to pray leads us in prayer. Justin, you want to close this out in prayer? That's that's Colin's nice way of saying, Gavin, you said we were going to end in an hour. <laughs> I had like three other things I was going to say, and they were all really, really good, but they were not as good as prayer. <laughs> So that's that's an old pastor trick, though. You know, we've been having lunch here. We were going on an hour and a half. Well, is there anything I can pray for you about? Take my first pray? rodeo, Kevin. Well, you know, you've done podcasts before. Okay, okay. Kevin, do you want to say your things and then I'll close in prayer? Oh, look, at there's a real friend. There's bailed friend. me out. Bailed you out, Kevin. No, no, no. Uh, I, I agree. We We should... We, we should pray, and I think we should allow that, you know, something that's as complicated as this and has been happening for as long as this and trying to understand what it means in our own head and heart, you know, I, I find myself thinking, I, 
I gotta, I gotta know what it is. I gotta, I gotta have the book in my head or the blog post that just makes sense of it all and helps everyone. And maybe that's not, you know, your particular, you know, bent, but I, I've definitely had to step back and no, I, I, I do need to pray. And I say, Lord, help me, help me to be courageous. There's a lot of different ways to be courageous. I remember Piper saying one of the, one of the hardest ways to be courageous is in, in personal relationships and talking to people in, um, being courageous with your ideas and being courageous to be wrong. And I remember Piper saying too, in this particular issue with race, just stay at the table, stay Um, easier for people like us. I know we haven't been at the table and doesn't cost us nearly what it costs other people. But at some point, if you talk about race, if you care about this issue, you'll be misunderstood. You'll get something wrong. You'll, you'll, you'll be hurt or you will hurt someone. And so to bear with one another, love covers over a multitude of sins, and to stay at it uh, is one of the best things we can do. So, Justin, why don't you pray for us? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are our Father, that you have adopted us as your own. We thank you that you are our Father in heaven and that you are ruling and reigning, that you are seated on the throne of grace Uh, We thank you that you love us and that you are working for the good uh, for everyone who loves you and is called according to your purpose. Lord, we pray for your kingdom to come. We pray for righteousness to be done. We pray for there to be justice, not just justice one day, but we pray for earthly justice, that those who do evil would be stopped and held to account. Lord, we pray for humble hearts. Uh, We pray that we wouldn't always be quick to offer our solution or our hot take or our refutation of others, but that we would uh, genuinely listen to the hurt and the pain of others. And then we pray, Lord, that you would enable us to have courage to speak the truth in love. Help us to know when to speak and when to be silent. Keep us from anger. Uh, Keep us from triviality. Give us a compassionate hearts, Lord, that long for the gospel to go deep into each of our hearts and to affect us not just at a personal level, but uh, all of society. So your kingdom come, Lord, your will be done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Colin. Thank you, Justin. So grateful for you guys. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Glorify God, enjoy Him forever, and go read a good book.